0: I can just use some some pre-recorded laughter and applause from somewhere
1: Give ourselves a clap before we even start recording the show That's a sign of a great show coming That works It does feel to me like my IQ goes up 10 points when I put my glasses on
0: Careful, you put the glasses on (laughs)
1: Then there's no way that I can possibly make a mistake. This is literally what I always
2: think, though. Honestly, I'm always like, should have got a haircut, should have worn something different, should have done this. Yeah. Let's do some podcasting, people.
1: Stop it! This is a professional show!
2: <laughs> right, that's exactly what I'm trying to do. Come on, you can do it. Right, (laughs) I love it so much.
1: Welcome to Troublesome Terps, probably the best way to spend your time in the evening or in the car or in the gym and learn something amazing about interpreting. With me, of course, we have our amazing duo. First up, he's the man from Munich, the man who knows more about that new Berlin airport than is probably comfortable for a human being, Alexander Gansmeyer.
2: I also have the best Curryverse tips if you ever get around to Tegel. Alex knows it, Alex shares my views, so hit us up if you're ever if you ever around. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, and we've spent the um, the early part of, of this recording talking about how incredible his work is making the podcast sound amazing. He is the author, the founder of The Drex Effect, our one and own Editor and Master of Ceremonies, Alexander Drexel.
0: Thank you, uh, and good evening. It's good to see you. And before we, before we move on, I, I need to get a shout-out uh, out to um, everyone who is actually listening to this in their car, driving through California, because, as everybody knows, there's a lot of driving to be done in California. So uh, it's good um, that you're listening to us, and please drive safely.
1: <laughs> yes, we... <In> your Teslas. <laughs> we don't <laughs> want any troublesome Terps-related road-, road incidents, you know, cause of accident, funny podcast god no <laughs> so on this episode we have oh actually Alexander was going to do this intro but i'll do it anyway on this episode <laughs> we're, we're coming to a subject which is dear to many interpreters hearts as you might have guessed we were talking about interpreting in the eu institutions and i have to say now that i think i've already reached my quota for making puns on why the european institutions are called institutions <laughs> 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 so in case you wondered and in case any of this actually makes a final cut at all, <laughs> <laughs> whereas on our research episode it was like the two Alexies dogpiling on to me and trying to ask me difficult questions, <laughs> on the epi- this episode we're turning the tables on our resident un- unelected Eurocrat, <laughs> Alexander So I, I get to
0: be at the bottom of the pile then, is that how it works?
1: <laughs> yes, we, we, we get to cross-examine you and make you go through hustings, which always sounds like huskies to me, I don't know why. <laughs> We get to ask you all the sorts of difficult questions that people will be asking MEP candidates at the moment. The hard hitting facts, that's right. So we're gonna just lay it on you and and yeah. um yeah, hopefully get get something out of you.
0: <laughs> well, there's gonna be something, yeah.
1: Yeah, what, one thing that really does surprise me is that there seems to be kinda like not quite Chinese walls, but there seems to be a, a separation between the interpreters who work in each of the institutions.
0: Yeah, we'll get to that. that.
1: Those who do the summit aren't necessarily those who do the Council of Ministers. And the number of times I've been told off by interpreters who work for the Commission for suggestion that they might actually end up going near Parliament at any stage. Yeah. It, it's kind of like you have your own tribes. And I think you also have two separate DGs, two separate Directorate Generals to manage interpreting in the European institutions. I have to get my yeah. terminology right.
0: Um, as we've probably mentioned mm-hmm. on earlier shows as well, um there is a there is an interpreting service in the commission that's skic or dg interpretation that's where i work there is one in the parliament which is currently called dg link i think um that rhymes nice uh and there is a an interpreting service in the european court of justice which is very specialized because you need uh you basically need uh, a lot of legal training on top of your interpreting training to be sure. able to work sure. in those meetings um the interesting thing though is that If you're a freelance interpreter and you're accredited to the for the European Union, you get to work for all three institutions, you know, in the same way, basically. Whereas the officials um, only get to work for one institution. There's an asterisk as well, but never mind. That's the easy bit. Sure, we'll get into that. (laughs) We also have, and we also have a strict separation between translators and interpreters, because just given the nature of the work, um, there's no point in mixing and matching it. So interpreters interpret and translators translate. That's it.
1: How much uh, communication is there between the translation sections and the interpreting sections? Because I imagine that your work could often overlap where, you know, a, a term is coined by an interpreter that might not be there before, and then it has to go to terminology to be settled on what term you're going to use. And it would make sense to have some kind of communication between the translation and interpreting sections to actually get consistent quality from both. Is there any such communication?
0: Um, yeah, there is. And I think it's there's there's more of that than there used to be in the past. I mean, I can only speak for the commission, but I suppose that it's sort of similar in the other institutions as well. So, what happens is, for example, that um, uh, we have joint training courses sometimes where we can both attend and, you know, you, you get to converse with them. We sometimes have joint events or joint conferences or, you know, Interpreters will go to the to the big um d g t so d g translation events uh, events so for example the big conference that is always in the autumn um, which is called translating Europe i think so you attend each other 's events um and of course we work a lot with the documents that are translated by the translators because we we you know prefer preparing meetings in several languages. And for that, we use the translations that are already available for a new directive or regulation, for example. Um, And in terms of terminology, I think it it mostly works the way that we use the terminology that is done by terminologists and translators, because they're real experts in terminology, unlike interpreters. Um, And of course, there's a certain amount of sort of ad hoc terminology, but that usually stays in the meeting. Um, I think we we can also contribute to IATES or the big terminology database of the European Union, but I I would assume that it's it's not a lot. I think most of that comes from DGT or from the translators in general.
1: Well, I mean it's one thing I, I'm I don't know if terminologists actually take account of, but certainly I take account of when I'm preparing a term list for a meeting, is the how easy a term will be to say at high speed while you're interpreting. Um, i don't know about youtube if i have a choice no. between two terms and one is a tongue twister and the other one is three syllables i'll take the three syllable one every day just because it can be easier to say when i need to
0: yeah i mean you you don't always have the choice but sometimes you can, yeah. you can write down the acronym for example and use that instead especially you know when it's something like finance yeah um or so fisheries is interesting sometimes mm. because then you often have to use the latin names and they don't mm. Exactly roll of the tongue. So mm.
1: yeah. <laughs> I, I did um, most of an afternoon in a fisheries council meeting, not for the European Union, but one of the adv- one of the advisory councils that sends policy recommendations, we spent an entire afternoon discussing the existence, role, and importance of Zeno fire Force. And it got to the point where even the, the delegates were calling calling them Zeno-what So, of <laughs> course, nice. if they are calling them Zeno-what call When you're going into French, you're going to call them Zeno-n'importe quoi. That's what you do as an interpreter. Yes, you do. <laughs> and so I, I have no idea if the poor person writing up the notes of the meeting ended up writing Zeno-what call it? <laughs> That's hilarious. And, that
0: is hilarious.
1: And you know, you know, you talk about ad hoc terminology. I, I, I came up with an ad hoc term for something that the, the French fishermen had said to try and get... You know, they, they negotiate what they'll do over each, each patch of sea. And I came up with an ad hoc term. And they ended up discussing what that meant. And to the best of my knowledge, that went into the document that went to the commission. <laughs> so I apologize in advance to the commission.
0: <laughs> I'll pass it on. <laughs> that is the very French funny.
1: Booth, the French booth had like a picture of
2: Jonathan in, in the booth. Like a little crosshair on it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, My God. So, how long have you been with the EU, Alex? To get this out of the way. So
0: I I went through the whole selection procedure in 2000. Hang on. Yeah, 2005, 2006, and then the final interpreting exam was in November 2006, and then I freelanced for a couple of months and officially started in June 2007. So that's roughly 12 years.
2: So how long does it take you to learn that whole? Sp- system that whole apparatus and how everything interlinks and works together
0: oh gosh um like
2: do you, do, you, do you are you because no, like the question is kind of like did you have to figure it out yourself like how everything kind of connects or do you guys get like a sit-down training where it's like okay you're in the eu now this is how it's going down
0: well the thing is you're actually supposed to know that beforehand for the whole selection procedure because you there are questions on how the eu works Um, so (laughs) well good for you you know (laughs) yeah no i mean there's there's books and there's like online courses now and you can get coaching to to prepare for the they have an assessment center and all kinds of things now so to prepare for the whole selection procedure and then actually the most difficult part in the beginning was um not necessarily knowing how it works because that i knew because i had to but applying that in in the meeting so um it's kind of the whole general meeting jargon and conference terminology plus the whole eu um terminology and a, and a lot of the things that get thrown around in meetings you know that's not necessarily the official terminology but kind of the insider slang or insider jargon rather and that takes a while to get used to so that was actually the most the most difficult part in the beginning to know what a recital is um it's it's not a concert <laughs> um and, uh, you know, the whole, the whole procedures and, and um, you know, the details of the procedures. So that was, that was tricky in the beginning.
1: It would be really great if they could um, require people standing for MEP to have to have that same knowledge of how the thing actually works.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think a fair amount will probably know at least the basics. I'm pretty sure about that.
1: So w- what do you do there exactly? And are you just stuck in Brussels all the time, interpreting for the same people, drinking lots of coffee?
0: Uh, yes, I drink a lot of coffee. Um, like that. <laughs> no, um, no, I'm not just stuck in Brussels. I mean, most of my work is here. Um, as an official in the interpreting service of the Commission, I work not only for the Commission, but also for the Council of Ministers. Um, we, we also work for the European Council. So we, we are at the summit as well. We work for smaller institutions like uh, many of the EU agencies, for example. Um, so we basically cover everything... Apart from the European Parliament and the Court of Justice, that's kind of the easiest way to explain it. Um, and a lot of those meetings take place in, in Brussels, of course, all the working groups, um, you know, Commission meetings, um, committees, and so on and so forth. Um, but we also travel a fair bit. So, for example, the colleagues working at the Parliament, um, they go to Strasbourg every month. Um, they go on mission too. On going on mission, sorry, means going on a trip for interpreting and uh, going somewhere so it's basically a business trip but we call it a mission from the french term mission um,
2: and also it sounds much cooler than business trip yeah some people say it
0: sounds a bit like uh, a secret service thing uh, i never got that but a totally spawn <laughs>
1: vibe going on there yeah, yeah, I, exactly. yeah I thought that like an interpreter going on a mission meant that you have to You had to like jump on a speeding train and disarm a bomb and. (laughs) No. I don't know why you would be
2: dueling your hand, going like, (laughs) and this is only the lunch break, ladies and gentlemen!
0: (laughs) I have jumped on trains, but it was not for interpreting.
1: Anyway. (laughs) Cut cut the blue wire, cut the blue wire. Yes, there is.
2: Coming up in a Troublesome Terps special episode: Why Alex Drexel Jumped on the Train? Was it the the Drexel effect? Yeah,
0: possibly. Um, <laughs> we don't defuse bombs, but um, sometimes we have to get through, you know, tricky technical situations. Political bombshells, like and yeah, you know, you know yeah, put, you political and diplomatic um, details. I guess, yeah. <laughs> but I think the bulk, yeah, the bulk of the work is actually in Brussels. Yes.
1: This totally isn't in the show notes and probably won't make the final recording. But uh, as, as freelancers, we all know that feeling of when you metaphorically defuse a bomb in a meeting. Oh yeah! By by realizing that someone's put their foot in it and probably doesn't realize, and if you interpret it just this way, it will stop everyone trying to kill each other, and you might get paid. Um, I do you ever have <laughs> to do a, that? Everybody's dead. <laughs> <laughs> Cause everybody's dead. Not not literally dead, but. Anyway, but, but do, you, do you ever find yourself just smoothing over things, or are you kind of... Because I know court interpreters are sworn to just say it as it's said.
0: Yes, yeah.
1: Are you in um, the same norms? N-
0: no, not the same norms as, as legal interpreters. But I mean, what does happen is just, you know, slips of the tongue, you know, getting a number on, and, and those are things that you you might as well just... Correct, quote unquote, correct. Um, but the thing is that we mostly work with delegates who are very used to working in this sort of international context, working with other cultures. Um, so you don't really, you don't really have these sort of incidents where you know people misunderstand each other or they misread um, each other. And also, mostly the discussions are very technical. So it's really about you know legal stuff, technical stuff. It's not about something that. You know, would be the would be the stuff of a situ- situation that gets very heated. Um, mm. I mean, it, you know, it does happen, but most of the stuff is fairly routine. You know, negotiation or, or uh, explanations, presentations. So there's, um, since people are mostly very experienced with this, there's actually there are very few situations where it gets really, really tricky. I don't really recall any situation where that happened, to be honest. Maybe it's then, sort of. It could be personal animosities or personally, personal, you know, antipathy or something like that. But it, it's very rare, I think.
2: Mm. So how's it work though? Because, I mean, especially in this day and age, there's a lot of politicians who don't behave like normal politicians. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. How, I really don't know how else to say it. Um, and, I mean, there's been some stories out of the EU that that kind of stuff also happens in, in their meetings wherever they may take place have you guys run into anything in your booth where you were like oh did this just was this just what he said what they said what she said or like did you guys kind of get spared by all of this so far
0: um yeah i think that that's mostly something that happens in the parliament so mm. i think work working at the parliament is much more is much more like um what do you call that a high wire act so right uh, it can be really really difficult first of all because you have these you know strong political personalities that sort of can clash in meetings especially in the plenary with all the attention that it gets and the media mm. attention and on top of that you have the fact that um, the especially the plenary meetings are web streamed a lot of other meetings are web streamed as well so people will listen to the interpretation people will pick up on things um, and we don't really we don't really have that because we don't work with politicians that that much we mostly work with you know experts in the Mm. field of i don't know you know environmental protection or fisheries you know discussing quotas maybe so that could be heated but it's usually fairly level-headed let's say
2: i like the high wire act though because that i feel like that describes it kind of
0: but that's what it is yeah 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 because they also i think also the the interpreting is recorded so if you go back and you you rewatch a a webcast of a plenary meeting you can listen to the interpretation coming from all the booths and you know if you want to go through that with the fine tooth comb stuff like that and people do that occasionally
2: okay so this is really interesting and uh, i might be kind of jumping ahead of a couple of questions that we have i don't really know but um when you're co- i mean i don't know if you guys ever get recorded if you're on a mission or if you do like expert discussions or if that's kind of all like quote unquote off the record hmm. but um if the colleagues in the plenary session if they get recorded i mean when i get recorded and i'm sure jonathan is the same you get like an extra fee for the recording for the copyrights but for hmm. you guys like you get a monthly wage and whatever you guys do in that monthly wage it's all covered i'm um, is yep. <laughs> that is that kind of how it goes? So whether you're
0: that's one hundred percent how it goes. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So like, does it? It really doesn't matter what you do. Whether you do like five days of plenary sessions. Well, this is probably not happening. But you know, whether you do five days of this, or whether you're in Brussels for a whole month, or whether you're actually three weeks on a mission like you. This is just. It's all kind of covered in your standard thing, your brief, and you get that at the beginning of the month, and then that's kind of off you go.
0: It's yeah. So it's all covered as a, It's all covered by your. Salary, So that's um, that covers what you do. And it also because we had an interesting discussion about that on Twitter the other day about um, the copyright that you have to your interpreting. And as a freelancer, you should you hopefully have a clause in your contract that covers that
2: if you don't please include that
0: <laughs> yeah exactly because some clients try to sneak that in and just yes. just record you know for later just in case we want to listen to anything that, just for that the minutes we're not gonna we're only yeah.
2: actually gonna use it internally well you know exactly and happened. for us
0: that's just that's just covered yeah, yeah, yeah. um and in terms of workload i don't know if that's maybe really getting into the weeds now but um in terms of workload we don't get more money if we work more we then get sort of compensation with free time if we have a particularly stressful period you know then right. you'll get a half day off or stuff like that so but you don't get more money and it's the same for freelancers so if you work as a freelancer in the plenary um then for that day you are also basically like an official or a, an employee of the institution and that covers your copyright and and everything else as well
2: so even for the freelancers the same rules apply not yeah. like
0: you know for all intents and purposes you do the same work and it's just the same as the person sitting next to you in the booth
1: interesting i mean the the it's an interesting thing of having freelancers and staffers together. Um, yeah. Th- that always struck me as a really interesting decision because I can understand the excess capacity issue that you would have in, in something the size of, of the EU where you would have moments where, you know, demand exceeds supply. Um, do you do the staffers notice any difference when freelancers were in, not necessarily on quality because I, I guess testing would cover that but on the the different approaches to... To how to solve certain interpreting problems, or you know, different uh, how intimate their knowledge might be of this person's point of view or that person's point of view. Oh,
0: that's a good question. <laughs> I mean, the work is exactly the same as you as you just said. Um, I'm not sure if there's a difference in approach to or in a difference of, of interpreting strategies. I guess I, I don't think so, um, because the the truth is that many of the freelancers who work for the institutions, work a lot for the institutions, so you know how they work. And as you said, you know, the the accreditation test covers covers that. So you, you would be at the same sort of level of quality as a staffer. Yeah,
2: Yeah, and then even I would just assume um, that if you are a freelancer seeking out work at the institutions, you'd be kind of inclined to those topics, you know, like you're interested, you're kind of keeping up with Politico.eu or whatever it is. <laughs> no, like you know, I'm just saying, like you're 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 interested in the subject matter, just like you. I don't Makes know. Makes it make, much easier if you're just. Yeah, interested it does, it it, does make course, it a lot yeah. easier. You know, just like I'm yeah. reading like a bunch of like I don't know, tablet, computer chip, whatever blogs. Like mm. they probably read the same stuff, so they probably are kind of up to scratch. But that's really good. Yeah, so that's really interesting, and I think um, so you've already said that if you're a freelancer you can still work for the eu you can still get a a decent amount of work for the eu with the accreditation test which i guess i don't know if we want to spend too much time on the accreditation test but it's kind of infamous like uh (laughs) you know it is it is sort of the stuff of interpreting legends and nightmares and nightmares (laughs) much more appropriate yeah um so, if you could just, like, give a really short rundown of, of what it entails. Um, and then there's obviously also uh, an interpretation, like, an actual interpretation part to it. Mm. Maybe just some details on that, like, what they what they want to see from you there.
0: Yeah, I mean, that, those are two different things, though. So, if you yeah. want to become uh, a permanent official, you have to go through the whole sort of selection procedure with the European Personnel Selection Office, or EPSO in short, because we have an acronym for everything, um, so that's of course is it, that of course is a much more convoluted procedure. Because th- theoretically, at least, if you were to go through the whole procedure, you become uh, a permanent official as an interpreter. Basically, you could always switch to another department in the uh, commission. Um, so that's a very rigorous procedure where you have. Um, you know, general knowledge, knowledge about the EU, uh, verbal reasoning, numerical reasoning, you know, sort of logical thinking, all the things that we're not very good at, or at least some of us. <laughs> I I, I'll speak for myself I'm, that I'm not very good at. Um, and then at the end, you have the interpreting test. Whereas if you want to be accredited as a freelance interpreter, so you basically want to, the EU to become your sort of client, um, the, then it's, "Quote unquote, just an accreditation test, so that focuses much more on testing your interpreting capabilities. So that's the bi- that's the big difference, basically. Um, and yeah, I mean, yeah, you said the the accreditation tests are a little bit infamous. That's true. But um, I think what many people don't realize is that the the accreditation test is actually a lot of work, i.e., also cost for the institutions because of course we have to make colleagues available from the respective languages to be on the jury sure. so to to prepare everything to select the people that we want to test to invite them um, speeches have to be written um, to be you know given to the candidates to interpret um, we have to book the room you know all these these things cost a lot of time and money so of course we want to make sure that um, People actually pass, <laughs> you know. I mean, um, we 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 run the accreditation tests because we need new colleagues. We're not doing that for fun or to sort of you know <laughs> put people down or, or criticize them, and that's what what maybe sometimes people don't realize all that much. So we 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 really have an interest in in having new colleagues. So we want to make sure they can show that they know how to interpret. So we're not we're right. not trying to give them extra tough speeches to you know show how bad they are stuff like that so we have i think fairly normal speeches and doable speeches to make sure they can show you know their interpreting skills both in consecutive and simultaneous so that's that's kind of the idea and i think that's that's probably enough on the whole testing thing because you know the 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 procedure changes from time to time and also the the profile that we are looking for changes, so you know that's kind of in flux. But it's all it's all on the website if you're interested in the in the details. And yeah, we, we have a lot of links here, so we'll, we'll we put do have that a ton of links. links in the show notes.
2: <laughs> exactly. So if you're interested in that, just look it up.
1: I, I was I was going to say, um, has there been any discussion about kind of historic changes in pass rates? Because I'm aware that. Certainly, when I did my training, a lot of the interpreter training at university level was very much geared to diplomacy, politics, and, and international organizations. It seems to me that there's uh, that that's still there, but in some universities, they're kind of turning more towards private market face stuff, which, to my understanding, involves a slightly different set of interpreting skills. You know, you've still oh, yeah. got basic interpreting, but there's something different that happens if you're at a demolition meeting or a business negotiation that you don't really get in the eu has that affected pass rates at all
0: oh that's a very technical question and, and I'm, I'm not familiar with the pass rates to be honest and, and those will vary because th- there are so many factors that play into it but i mean just on the and alex correct me if i'm wrong but i think in Ger- germany trains much less for the institutions
2: yes i think so
0: and the thing is also that um, the demand coming from the institutions was actually very, very important for those "quote unquote" smaller um, countries and the, for the interpreting training there. Because, for example, when the big um, the big enlargement happened in two thousand four, when when a lot of new countries joined, um, some of those countries didn't have any interpreter or really, you know, graduate level interpreter training. So, Skic and the other institutions were sort of instrumental in in getting that up to speed because we needed the people trained to that level. And so the training had to be, you know, funded and supported. And we were sort of lobbying with the universities to to build up those capacities to make sure we, we could have those people coming from there.
2: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But it's true, Jonathan, what you say as well is that the, the different universities have, have um, widely different curricula when it comes to private markets focus or institution focus. Like, um, just… A quick side note: My cousin is also studying to be an interpreter, so I guess it kind of somehow oh, cool. runs. Yeah, it kind of somehow runs in the family. But she's living and studying in Vienna, and she said that Vienna is strictly focused on the institutional market, and um, it's also very theoretical up to a certain point, And they are strictly trained to be to be that to be um, institutional interpreters with C languages. They Get to pick them. They get to learn them on top of everything else. Whereas with my training in the UK, the whole selling point of that course, for example, was we do not train for institutional interpreters. We train people to be um, private market mm. entrepreneurs, if you will. So that was really the selling point. So That's yeah, the big I, difference, right? Yeah, yeah. And
1: yeah. I, I think even within the private market training and the private market thinking. So my training was heavily institutional, uh, heavily international organization, quite heavy politics, with a little bit on kind of. Um, technical meetings, Mm. whereas my freelance practice, I've had the technical meetings. I've done a couple of EWCs, European Works Councils, for those who don't know them.
0: It's EU-adjacent work, yeah.
1: (laughs) Um, But but I've also had um, commercial conferences where the the trend is far more towards you know yes be accurate if anyone can define what accuracy is, um, but also we need you to sound as if not more convincing than the original speakers. Mm-hmm. So you know if if you're doing a conference where people are trying to persuade people of how amazing their new technique is and you should come to our stand to hear more, right? You know the 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 under set thing being and get us into to do whatever it is that we do, then if the interpreter is technically brilliant but can't deliver a compelling public speaking for toffee, they shouldn't be there. <laughs> Whereas there are some meetings where you don't really need any interpreting style, you just need to be able to deliver acronym after acronym after acronym and everything will be okay.
2: Yeah, But that's also its own sort of art
1: form, because honestly, yeah. like as soon
2: as interpreters hear acronyms, just one after the other, it just kind of It's kind of like the same effect when you hear somebody rattling down like their annual balance sheet and you just hear like number after number and it just goes like, oh my God, numbers, oh my God, acronyms, what is going on? And then you just kind of, uh, yeah, so, uh, you know. The accounts talk. (laughs)
0: <laughs> you can't stop, yeah yeah
2: which <laughs> well, you know like
0: but acronyms are sort of everywhere these days no it's many finance are. it's you know they it's just really not are, just eu stuff yeah.
2: that's true but honestly like with with finance and also like it and you know a lot of those things and and medical interpreting like those acronyms oftentimes really stay the same so i'm guessing with eu you know just look at gdpr i'm sure like the acronym in every country is completely different and so you have to like really be aware of the acronyms and how they kind of intersect um, around the continent. Whereas with I don't know mm. finance, like whatever,
0: it's always English.
2: It usually always stays in English, yeah. So
1: I don't... in IT, a Cat5 cable is always maybe a Cat5, but that just gets confusing in French. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say so, like the 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 bet in the war of many freelance interpreters is the dreaded budget talk. Uh, or the, the dreaded finance talk. Do you ever have to do like eight hours or three days of budget meetings? Yes. <laughs>
0: <sighs> yeah. So it, it, um, in the in the German booth, at least in the Commission, we have a, a, a pool of sort of a subgroup of, of people who specialize on sort of finance and budget. So I work in the budget committee quite a bit, and also in other finance-heavy meetings. And yeah, those can be quite uh, taxing. <laughs>
1: Can, See what can, I did that you, ah, or, I Can you get away with, because my escape clause is always the word roundabout or environ <laughs> French, can you get away with that in the EU? You know, it's about a couple of billion euro. Either a couple yeah. of either way.
0: <laughs> yeah, but you see that, that. I mean, unless you're working from French, the, the the figures are usually not the huge problem because often you have a presentation or you know it's kind of a meeting document to go by. Um, but it's it's really also the, the budget terminology and you know how how the whole thing works and and all the you know budget cycles, which is often even more difficult than the. Than the figures. wasn't the
2: Belgium least. French, anyways, like non or something. I there heard are, the there are a few tiny so differences. much better yeah. than French
1: French. I, I'm gonna lose about a thousand listeners now. <laughs> yes.
2: but, so Alex, because we already covered the um, the freelancers starting work for the EU. Now you, as a staffer, as a full-time staffer for the EU, yeah. would you be able to take on any freelance work? Like if I said I have this amazing automotive conference in Brussels, Alex, mm. are you free? You can. No, I'm not free. <laughs> All right. no
0: i i have only one master and that's the european commission <laughs>
2: <laughs> and we'll just leave it at
1: that
0: <laughs> yeah oh, no i mean it's it's there's really not much more to say it's a, yeah it's a no and that's it no i, I can't do any freelance interpreting so, on side.
1: so say for example i mean there, there's two questions leading off of that but the first one is say for example the eu were to implode and disappear in a mixed somewhere how many uh, would you? Would your, would your uh, let's just say it, rather than how many would your average staff colleague thrust into the the welcoming bowels of the private market would they be comfortable there or would they look for is there another institution that I can go for and get the same kind of interpreting environment
0: mm, that's a good question I don't know um, to be honest I mean that's that's probably a question that you have to ask each and every of the Five hundred or so of us, and I think you you get a lot of different different answers. I think we we have a lot of we have a lot of colleagues who are very passionate about interpreting and really, really love the job, so they might they might go somewhere else um, to be able to keep interpreting, and others um, would probably appreciate staying in the institution and doing something else there because there's plenty of you know very interesting jobs in the commission or in the parliament, say. So you'll get a lot of different replies, and to be frankly, if you're asking me, I I don't know. I, w- I would have to I would have to think about it.
1: But I I think that is the question: is that we're. So I'm I'm bagging this drum at the moment about how interpreting is interpreting no matter where you do it, who who you do it for which setting you're in, but a lot of people, even amongst interpreters, we have seem to have different personalities that are attracted to different environments. Um, and also, I think, different people's family situations as well. So you get might get some people who say, you know, um, my other half w- wouldn't survive, wouldn't want to try to survive for five minutes in a city that has as many interpreters as Brussels does. Uh, you Imagine know, that, that, the noise that, level. It's not
0: that bad, you know. <laughs> you don't really see them in the street, you know. It's not Just like, who has an interpreter?
1: <laughs> It just take up all the coffee shops at the end of every day.
0: Um, oh, there's a lot of other people there as well, you know. <laughs>
1: the The other question that comes off of the whole idea, whole idea of you know you have one master is, um, what's the process for work allocation? And do you ever have the right to say, okay, this meeting's come in, um, for the sake of my conscience or for the sake of whatever? I would not feel comfortable doing that. Please, can I be reallocated? That is a really good question, and I have so many follow up questions.
2: Yeah,
0: I'm just going to explain how it works, and I'll I'll keep thinking in the back of my head about the whole conscience thing. Um, yeah, but I mean, it's 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 a uh, well, it's it's a big machine that we're working in. So what happens is that when a commission director a general or a, a council working group decides to have a meeting, and many of those meetings happen on a regular basis anyway, so there's a lot of again a lot of routine repetition in there. But yeah, we have um, we have. Uh, departments or units rather um, in the service that sort of uh, accept these requests for meetings. We have an IT system where all of that is managed so where you can capture sort of the size of the meeting, the languages that are required, where it takes place and all of that. and of course, uh, usually the demand is much higher than the supply, both the supply of interpreters and also the supply of available meeting rooms. Um, so there has to be a what we call arbitrage, so a, a decision process, uh, a waiting process um, that needs to take place where you decide which meeting can go ahead with which languages. In which room, basically. And there's a little bit of flexibility because, you know, maybe there you take away the Polish booth and there you add uh, a Dutch booth or something. So um, there's a little bit of of wiggle room there. But um, once that happens then we basically have two different teams. Um, One team is called the planning unit, and the planning unit is always in charge for the current week, basically, because there's a lot of changes also sort of during the week. Um, Meetings get cancelled. Meetings get shortened from a full day to a half day, or the other way around. They get prolonged from a half day to full day, um, that kind of thing. So, they take care of that, and they take care of the ongoing week, and making sure all the interpreters are where they're supposed to be. And then we have the programming unit, which is sort of the forward-looking unit, which does the the future planning sort of for the following weeks and months. Um, So once the – well, to simplify things, once the meeting is in the system, then you try to find the interpreters that you have available, and maybe you have to book a few freelancers to fill a few holes that have popped up here and there. You, You reserve the meeting rooms and all of that um yeah and then then you as an interpreter you get slotted in somewhere you know which is one of the reasons that um some interpreters would never really want to do that or wouldn't wouldn't want to do this exclusively because i mean you have very little you have very little agency is a big word but you have very little influence um in the end uh, most of it is determined by your language combination obviously so you'll get you'll get put into the meetings where you Make sense with the languages that you can provide. Um, so commission meetings typically have a smaller number of languages, um, whereas the council, of course, has a, a bigger need, a wider need for for languages. So yeah, and in terms of turning down, I would say not really. I mean, that's that's. I mean, as as a freelancer, you can always influence the number of days that you get hired by the institution. So usually you, you offer a certain amount of days and then you get you get booked for a certain number of days. But once you're booked for the day, you have no influence on what kind of meeting that is. So, oh. you know, um, oh, you, wow. you don't see the meeting. You you just get, let's say, the 15th of May. Um, and then that could be a fisheries meeting or the budget committee or a public consultation on topic X. It could be whatever. Um, and also that, you know, because there can always be last minute changes. So you can only... You get booked for a day you don't necessarily get booked for a specific meeting unless you have maybe a very very specific language combination or something but uh, not usually um, and as, a, as an official no you, you don't really get to say no I mean I'm a bit hard-pressed to come up with a meeting that would sort of clash with my conscience <laughs> I'm not really sure that's part of the deal of being an official.
1: So it's kind of then you you've got this trade off between financial stability and knowing that next week you're going to have interpreting work and next year you're going to have a salary, but in return for that you give up and I think agency is probably the right word here the the agency that freelancers have that you know if a if a, a job an assignment comes in we can look at it and go. For whatever reason, we can say no, whether it's we don't feel we have the expertise on that, which I don't think would be an EU issue, or whether it's um, I've seen the list of speakers at that meeting and I don't feel that I can interpret fairly for that speaker or this topic is something that I fundamentally don't agree with. So you get the stability in return for giving up your agency, whereas we get less stability but in return for more agency.
0: Yeah, I mean, you don't give it up, but you know, but um, yeah, you're you're, you're sort of, possibilities to to shape or influence that is uh quite limited shall we say i mean i, I it's because it's um, as you said if you said give up your agency it sounds a bit like you don't even think about things anymore you're just you know taking orders that's not what i mean but i mean um yeah there's there's just there's just very little flexibility due to the nature of the whole system and how it works
2: i also like when you said earlier and it's kind of it's not directly related to that, but you said earlier that you only serve one master and everybody always says to me, oh, it's so great that you're a freelance interpreter. You have all the freedom in the world. I'm like, no, I don't. <laughs> it's true, every, yeah. every, I true. Mean, you know, like you serve one master. Every client is my master. Like I serve so many different clients. So in a, in a way, like we have the agency, but then do we really, you know, all that much? So it's, it's kind just of, different. Yeah. It's different. Yeah. It's yeah. kind of same, same, but different. <laughs> one of my favourite things. Yeah. I, I,
1: would, I would say also those of us who build interpreting teams, there's this weird trade-off that happens. I don't know if you find this, Alex, weird. if you're building a team on the one hand, everyone looks to you because you're building the team, but on the other hand, you're serving the team because you have to ensure that the, the rates are right, you have to ensure the conditions are right, you have to ensure the equipment's right. And so you have pressures from both sides. You have a client totally. who wants a quote of a certain amount and you have interpreters who... And you would love to give them more, and you're kind of where you would actually everyone's servant rather than anyone's master. Yeah,
2: a hundred percent. I fully 100% agree to that. Yeah,
0: but we have a, a similar concept. So, what we have is the, the head of team. So, in every meeting, there will be a head of team. And, of course, you know, if I'm head of team, I don't get to pick the interpreters that are on the meeting, but I'm basically. Um, not really their boss, but I'm, I'm more of their advocate in a way. So I have to make sure, for example, that the the meeting president sort of sticks to the rules that exist. So, you know, there needs to be a lunch break of a certain time and um, the morning session can only be four hours maximum, that kind of thing. So I have to make sure that the working conditions are respected. I have to make sure that all the colleagues get their documents in the booth um, and that kind of thing. So, yeah. Just it's it's a little it's not exactly the same thing as a consultant interpreter, but the idea is similar.
2: So this brings up a very interesting point because you know they always say interpreting is a flat profession, and to a certain extent that's true in the freelance market. Um, do you guys in the institutions? Do you guys have any way of kind of advancing up the ladder, the like the career ladder? Like you know, is is becoming the I don't know the chef to keep the organizing interpreter person in charge like is that kind of what everybody aspires to or like is that basically a rotating system everybody gets to do it at one point how does that work
0: yeah i mean the whole head of team thing is not really uh it's not really something to uh Uh, to aspire to yeah no no, that's not what i mean (laughs) who wants to do that (laughs) or like a like an award or something you know it's just something that that comes with the job so you know (laughs) you can be there for two no maybe not two weeks but because the the planning unit will know you know this is a a very junior colleague so we won't we won't bother him with his task and so you'll 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 pick a more experienced colleague um just for practical reasons. But right. no, overall, is, it is quite flat because you know I have colleagues who have been doing this for 30 or maybe even longer years and they do the same meetings that I do. So, um, because there are so many meetings and th- there isn't really a lot of hierarchy. I mean, some meetings... Are more prestigious than others, you know. I mean, of course, it's nice to be working, you know, at the at the summit at the European Council or for the for the weekly meeting of the commissioners, you know. But um, apart from that, there there isn't really that much difference. I mean, okay. which is something that I like, but you know, it, it can yeah. be frustrating to others because some people really like, you know, having this sort of this career path in front of them, and um, the only thing that change basically is the salary over time. Um, that's about, And then maybe, you know, after time, you get to evaluate your colleagues or stuff like that. But it's it's really, it's mostly small things. Uh, there isn't a, a huge difference.
1: And I think this is kind of what both attracts people to interpreting and puts them off, is that, you know, you can be doing, I don't know about Germany, but in the UK market, you can be doing a prestigious meeting from the Scottish Parliament one day, and, you know, three days later, you could be in a muddy field with your welly boots on doing some truck stuff. Um, I, I'd imagine you don't get the same range of, you know, mud to cultural summits. But do you get that range of, you know, some meetings are really prestigious and, you know, the the press are all there. And the next time you're in a, a small room off, off a corridor somewhere trying to help people in fisheries decide on, you know, it's you go from the sublime to the ridiculous at all.
0: Oh, I get mud all right. So, um, I mean, that's that's kind of specific for my case because um, I have active English. So, I, I work um, German-English, English-German, and that means that I get to go on mission um, quite often in Germany and Austria for inspection trips, for example. So, that, that will be um, commission inspectors' um inspecting, you know, accounts, books, records, that kind of thing. But it can also happen that you have like uh, a food and veterinary inspection for you know, animal welfare or plant protection. And then you really go, you know, into the action as it were. So I, I have actually been walking around in fields measuring parcels. I have been to slaughterhouses and looking at hy- hygiene and stuff like that. So, but that's rather unusual. Most, most of it really happens in these fairly hygienic meeting rooms.
1: <laughs> what is it about the EU in slaughterhouses? I was talking to an EU translator not so long ago who said that he was building a de facto specialism in slaughterhouses. It's like 50% of EU <laughs> work about killing things.
0: No, no, it's not about killing things. It's, it's um, yeah, it's just about enforcing the rules that are in place for reasons like BSE and, you know, all that kind of jazz.
1: So what does a typical day look like? Is it the equivalent of, you know, having a nine to five office job? Pretty much.
0: <laughs> no, I mean, um, yeah, that, as I said, a couple of times now, there's there's a fair amount of routine involved, because, you know, I get my program for the week, um, I know where to go. And most of the meetings have a sort of a structure. So they usually start in the morning, then you go on for a couple of hours, you have a lunch break, then in the afternoon, you go on for a couple of more hours. And, uh, and that's about it. So, um, yeah, it's, it's almost like an office job to some extent.
1: I mean, the, the, this is the thing because I talk to I talk to someone who doesn't are like, oh, I'm so glad I don't work in an office. But in a way, if you're a staffer, that is what you do, although you have the added thing of, of missions. And mm. th- does that help you? Because there's a dreaded question in freelancers about... Um, work-life balance so is your work-life balance kind of basically set that you know you're doing nine to five Monday to Friday you know you've got every weekend off you don't have to worry too much about accounts or invoicing or or anything like that you just have to worry about editing podcasts
0: now the work-life balance is an interesting issue because um due to the stability that I have I think that that helps me in getting sort of the work-life balance right on the other hand you know when you when you Travel, I mean that just means that you're away from your family sometimes for uh, sometimes it's just one day or two days. Sometimes it's like Sunday to Friday when it's one of these longer um, missions. And as I said, I mean there's there's not much that you can do about it. It it just comes it just comes with um, with the job. And also, um, you have actually very little flexibility. So simple things like getting a, a dentist's appointment. <sighs> It can be very difficult because I usually try to get that in, you know, uh, either very early in the morning or maybe kind of around lunchtime so as to avoid that it eats too much into the actual booth time. Because, you know, I can say to our planning team, okay, I, I have a dentist appointment at that day, at that time. But um, if it means that I have to leave, you know, in the middle of the morning and just leave my coll- colleagues hanging to some extent, right. that's just not great. So you're trying to Avoid that as much as possible, and also you never you know you never really know how long a meeting um, a meeting will last. You know, it, it's it might be scheduled until six thirty, and then sometimes you're done at four, sometimes you're done at three, but sometimes it takes like six thirty, and sometimes you have like a late evening meeting, and there's very little that you can do about that. So um,
2: yeah, this I, okay. So I don't. I mean, I know this from the European Patent Office in Munich. A lot of colleagues in Munich work. For for the European Patent Office, also a lot of people from outside of Germany come in to the European Patent Office, and they have the exact same thing. Like sometimes they get in, and they they know that the um, day starts at ten, and they have no idea how long it goes. Sometimes they're out by eleven because nobody showed up, and then the next day they're out by nine p.m. So that's really that's really
1: interesting. How do they make up for that? Because I know there's a huge deal about um, not interpreting for too long, because you know it's, it's actually bad for you. Yes. If you end up in a meeting that's scheduled for eight hours and it's actually going on to twelve, do you have relief teams that come in after eight hours, or do you just have to keep going with it and planning? Probably mm. sure they'll make up for it later.
0: Yeah, I think it really depends on the. Well, it's mean on the on the status of the meeting. So if it's a, I'm just going to say if it's an ordinary working group, then they have a hard limit at six thirty uh, in the evening. So it's like a long meeting. Okay. Yeah, I should pro- yeah should explain it a little bit differently. So there's there's no there's not really a maximum uh, amount of time that you can work in a given day. So just on rule of thumb in the commission you can work from eight in the morning until six thirty in the evening with a ninety minute lunch break, and the morning cannot be longer than four hours. That's kind of sort of the basic structure that we have in place. Um, but if it's anything, you know, like a council of ministers or any high-level meeting, then they uh, can either request in advance that it's going to be a late meeting, then that's fine. You know, that, that will be um, uh, accommodated. Um, and if it's sort of a last-minute thing, then, of course, you know, if it's a, if it's a council of ministers, then there will be a, a replacement team standing by to take over at 630 um, Let's say it really kind of depends um on the s- the status of the meeting and whether you know it in advance um, yeah so I mean, you,
1: you're almost as reliant on the goodwill of, you know if if you've got a family, you're almost as reliant on the goodwill of your family as we are totally oh sure yeah um, but but for different reasons
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly yeah, although for you guys, I think most most jobs involve travel, right at least to some extent.
1: I mean, it, it depends. Most of my career has been spent, kind of, Edinburgh, Glasgow, a few jobs up in Aberdeen and Inverness, where Edinburgh, Glasgow are fine. I'm usually home by dinner or at least by bedtime. Hmm. Uh, Aberdeen, Inverness, it's an overnight. Anything further than that is an overnight. But because the market up here, no one's getting 300 days a year in Scotland mm. that I'm aware of. So there's big gaps between that will be jobs. That would be a lot of days anyway. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I, I'm not even sure how many of my colleagues who mostly work in Scotland are getting probably more than 100 even, if mm. that. Uh, maybe some aren't even getting any more than 30 or, or whatever. And so there can be big gaps between them. In fact, all of the interpreters that I know who are not institution registered are all interpreter and and a lot of us mm. will choose jobs that, you know, you're interpreter and. And so for some people, they'll, they'll do an and that gives them steady hours. So they might be interpreter and lecturer where they know roughly where the hours are going to fit or they're interpreter and translator. And so people, I think, tend to go for work-life balance that way that their and job is one that allows them to have more work-life balance so that when they are interpreting, you know, they, they've built up that goodwill. But even something as simple as, you know, if you're a staffer at the EU, getting an Amazon package delivered, if you're single, <laughs> would be a nightmare. Because, like, hardly well, anyone gives you times. And if, you, if they do give you times, you get, it's like, it's between 8, 8 a.m. and 6 p.m. It's like, yeah, thanks.
0: <laughs> but that's the same for everyone who has a job oh, that yeah. involves going to yeah. an office or a factory, you know, and, 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 you know, just pick it up at the post office on the weekend <laughs> or something.
1: <laughs> we, we have, like, some of our kind of. Um, um petrol stations now have like amazon lockers. Mm. that You can have it delivered to and, and go and get it there.
0: Yeah, we have a similar thing in Belgium like for the Belgian post office and the Germans have that as well, so.
1: Yes. Hashtag they should have placement. they should we have should get one, paid for this. <laughs> I think they should actually have what they should have one of those locker systems at the commission and just like everything delivered to Alexander Drexel, care of the commission and just kind of,
2: Oh my god! A colleague of mine used to have that though. Because a complete side note, she used to work in a carpet factory, and they had an Amazon room where like all of the packages were delivered every day. And like by the end of the day, that room was like bursting at it seems
1: every every day. It's crazy. No, she like showed me a picture once. It was crazy. Yeah, I was I was gonna say because like if you're on staff at some places, so if you work for a university, you will often get mailed to your university address because it's it's kind of university business stuff. Do you ever get mail delivered? So, like, do you have like an office that's yours at the commission for when you're not on duty? And do you ever get mail like delivered to you, care of the commission?
0: I d- I do get mail, but maybe once or twice a year. There's not that's not much mail anymore these days. But um... <laughs> those
2: are our fan letters, Jonathan.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, the things we we don't have an office. Um, the, our heads of booth have offices, and you know all the admin people, of course. But interpreters don't have offices. We have yeah. sort of common rooms, so it's usually for a, two or three different booths or language units put together. So there's a couple of computers. If you need to do any sort of office admin work, you can do that there if you want to. And we have mailboxes, and that's about it. And maybe maybe a nice uh, a nice plant or something. <laughs> Not a nice Uh, plant. It's just uh, a plant.
1: And let me guess, a really nice coffee machine.
0: Nope, nope. There's no coffee machine.
1: Oh, Jonathan, what you didn't know is that the EU is teetotal turbs. So can we just make an announcement now? We would like to ask... All of the interpreting directed at, directed at general's, please could you put coffee machines in the interpreters' common rooms for that small expenditure? The quality of your interpreting will go through the roof. <laughs>
0: yeah, but the, that's the, the,
1: the ROI hashtag acronym.
0: I'd rather have the coffee machine in the booth then, because you know these common rooms are actually quite far away from the from the meeting rooms that I work at, so it's not really practical to but go there. Yeah. You
1: can't have a coffee machine in the booth. Can you imagine you're in the middle of interpreting fisheries, no eaters? <laughs> 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 yeah.
2: I said a latte macchiato, not a cappuccino. What are you doing?
1: <laughs> what are you doing? Oh, yeah, because no one are ever precious about their coffee. Yeah,
2: no. No, that's <laughs> oh, not a Oh, my thing. God.
1: Oh, Jesus
2: <laughs> Christ. All right. So, moving on from coffee machines, because we, we have more questions to get to, people. Um, so, obviously, the EU has, um, I believe, 24 languages at the moment that are being interpreted in and out of... Give or yeah. take,
0: uh, the twenty fourth is uh, Irish, so there's not not a lot of interpreting in and out of Irish, but it does exist.
2: Twenty three and a half. All right. Um, so when I was a, a, a young interpreter, oh. an even younger interpreter, I should say, oh. um, that was a
0: time. Time was.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a long time ago. I can still remember. Um, but I was basically told to not even bother applying to the European Union unless I had at least two. Um, working languages besides my native language, and to not even bother if it, the language combination was any combination of German, English, and French because everybody did that. So I know that obviously you have a lot of other languages going on as well. Um, tons, tons, guys, you, yeah, you didn't tons. know. Alex has like countless numbers of languages, like eleven dozen sea languages. Yeah. He even um, speaks Dothraki.
0: I don't even like Game of Thrones, but that's another Can, discussion. Yeah,
2: so. Yeah, let's not even get into that. But can I just say really quickly of, uh, a quick side note? I saw a, an interview with the CEO of Duolingo yesterday on oh. CNBC, and he was saying that more people learn Klingon from Star Trek and Dothraki from Game of Thrones than learn Gaelic.
0: Ah. Oh. That's unfortunate. Should be the other way around. Yeah,
2: I didn't really know what to make of that, but I thought it was a very interesting side note. So here's the random fact of the day for you guys. Yeah. Um, but so the question is, how did you go about learning all these languages? Because I'm sure you didn't come in there with your Romanian and Dothraki fluent. So how did that work?
0: Uh, well, let's just leave the Dothraki aside for a while. But I <laughs> actually fine. did come in. <laughs> I actually did come in with all the languages that I have right now. <laughs> Um but Cut, um,
2: break rewind <laughs>
0: <laughs> No no but if, if you're interested in, in how the language learning works. Um yes. yeah, I mean people of course add new languages while they you know while they are on, on staff. Um and there are basically two different ways. So one is you can just follow a, a language course, an internal language course in SCIC or in the commission. Uh certainly for the sort of bigger languages, um like, you know, Italian, Spanish, German, English, French. Dutch and so on, um, and another another possibility is that you um, get a what we call a training voucher, so you get a, a fixed amount of money, like a budget, and you organize your own training. So you can get a private teacher, you can take classes, you know, um, do a a Skype coaching that kind of thing on on your own time, um, and then there are also um, possibilities to go abroad, you know, to to go to the country. Uh, where you study the language for a while and and just, you know, be in the country and maybe go to the university, um, follow a few lectures, that kind of thing. So there's a system in place to help people add new languages um, because, you know, especially the big languages like German, English, French, Italian, Spanish are always in demand and they're not going to go away. And to some extent, also this, you know, quote unquote, smaller languages. So there is a a system in place for language learning and also for um for for other training courses on the actual topics so we regularly have training courses on i don't know budget terminology how agriculture works what the latest develop me- latest develop Latest developments in fisheries are, you know, uh, new topics that come in, like maybe in the field of environment or transport. So, yeah. um, And usually those training courses happen in what we call slow periods. So when there are fewer meetings than usual and people are, you know, easier to take out, as we say, take out of the program. Uh, and be there's a funny thing in our internal in in our sort of scheduling system um, when you have a, a day of leave or you know something where you where you're not in the booth um, it says. Uh, not available for programming or indisponible <laughs> for la programmation, <laughs> which is kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, there you
1: go. So you are all Androids. I was wondering yeah. about this. Yes, yeah. <laughs> the Terminator is, is real. Do you have it's like true. space on your weekly or monthly schedule that's set aside for you to keep, you know, adding a language or learning more, or is it just, you know, they wait until you're not as in demand and then you can learn stuff at that point?
0: I mean, it's always easier in in slow periods to sort of, you know. Uh, Give you give you some time off for for doing stuff. Sometimes for very technical meetings, um, you can get sort of study time, étude document. So you get some some time if you have a, like a huge amount of very technical documents to prepare for a meeting. Sometimes you get time off for that. Um, but otherwise, usually we tr- we try to organize it in a way that it's as you know not as disruptive for the normal interpreting work.
2: That's really cool. I like that. So how many people uh, take Esperanto? language courses
0: <laughs> probably zero <laughs> just kidding.
1: But, but, but i mean the, the, the thing is as well as that there was there's been a big discussion i have a a, a Tumblr account if if anyone remembers Tumblr it, it was like
0: Tumblr is the site where you always have to confirm that you actually want to see the site before you get there right no it's yeah, actually it, it, the it,
1: site like hosted by mr tumble
2: that's the <laughs> <one>. <laughs> nice uh, and that's my one per podcast.
1: Oh <laughs> uh, And people say I'm the Pondmeister. So t- <laughs> Tumblr is kind of like, um, imagine Twitter, but with three times as many rants and ten times as many memes. There, there was like a big discussion on linguistics Tumblr about how we shouldn't talk about whether some languages are more useful than others. And from a linguistics point of view from a kind of sociology point of view I get it but if you're running if you're an interpreter and you want more interpreting work um, we're businesses you know it you kind of have to be a little bit mercenary and go well actually okay I'm going to be spending time in this country I'm going to learn the language or oh look um, I can see that you know, For instance, I would say interpreters training now, if you have any European language, I would say it's a very, very wise move at the moment to look to add either Russian or Mandarin. I right. would say the, so- the amount of work, it's an incredibly wise strategic move to do that. And especially if, like in the case of the UK, where native English speaking Mandarin interpreters are like hen's teeth to find. You could basically name your rates, and so it would be a really good strategic move. And there's nothing wrong with making a strategic move. Um, do people in the commit? Do, do interpreters in the commission look ahead and go, "Okay, I, I foresee there might be a lot of work in, or are there some languages that aren't the big ones that are still deemed more useful?
0: Uh hmm I think the whole sort of looking ahead is is probably done by our administration so because they know what kind of demands come in in terms of languages for meetings so they would determine on you know what's sort of coming down the pike, but I mean, there's a lot of fluctuation, of course, in terms of demand for individual languages, and that's discussed every year at the Skik Universities conference. So, if you're interested in that, you can go back and watch the recording from a couple of weeks, a uh, couple of months ago, um, and see what that's like. Um, there's one thing, however, where you have a lot of um, predictability, which is the the rotating council presidency. So, as you know, um, every six months there's a new member state that takes over the helm in the Council of Ministers and sort of takes over the presidency of the European Union to some extent. And of course, there will then be a higher demand for that language. So at the moment, it's Romania. So there's, a to some extent, a higher demand for interpreting with Romanian. Uh, next up is Finland, for example. So f- there will be much more Finnish than usual, that kind of thing. And of course, you, you know now the following presidencies for, uh, I don't know, I think at least five years or so. So for the interpreting services, they will already know to plan in advance in terms of, you know, booking freelancers, making sure maybe to train a few more people with that language if it's, uh, again, quote unquote, smaller language.
2: But at the same time, that question also came up when we did the the, the London Met event, Alex, because I remember one of the students was asking if they should Mm. learn a language because they feel it's strategic. And I get what you're saying, Jonathan, about the Chinese and the Arabic, because it's actually very forward looking. And that's Literally somewhere down the line that that comes in super hard and heavy, but you know I, I remember I, I think it was one of the students was asking uh, about English. I actually don't remember particularly who asked what, but I don't I'll have to go back listen to that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like if you if you want to know what I'm talking about, go back and listen to the episode. It's not going to be linked in the description box below, but it's going to be on our website. um yeah. And I remember that we were saying you shouldn't learn a language out of strategic considerations. Because you need to kind of everybody needs to have access to the language in the first place. Like if it's just a language that you're learning because of a potential financial gain, that's probably not really going to go well because you're not really in it mm-hmm. properly to win it. In it to win it. Um, and also by the time that you're going to be fluent enough in the language to make a living out of it, it's probably already going to be that window will probably have passed. Mm. Um, so I think that's a difficult thing to to. Um, kind of recommend to people. And uh, definitely don't learn Dothraki because Game of Thrones is now over. So that's done. <laughs> it's, it's done. Yeah. Uh, yeah.
0: Yeah, I think it's kind of difficult. I mean, when I, Romanian is, is probably a good example in my case. So I started learning Romanian just out of interest and out of curiosity in maybe 2002 or so. Um, and then, you know, initially the plan was for Romania to join in 2004 as well. It took them a couple of years longer. It was in 2000. Seven then, in the end, but I mean it was kind of foreseeable that there would be demand for interpreters with Romanian, not only Romanian a but also Romanian B and C so or C in my case so um since I already was in a Romanian course, it kind of makes sense made sense to sort of you know take it up a notch double and down tends, yeah. yeah double down on it exactly um but overall yeah i have I have problems with sort of recommending languages or making strategic choices, um, because I think it's become increasingly difficult. And, you know, for Russian and, and Chinese, for example, um, on the other hand, that there are a lot of, you know, Russian interpreters who also have very good active languages, like German and English, for example, and the same for the Chinese. So I'm not really sure if it's really that strategic a choice, because it does require considerable investment mm. um, for a European to learn Mandarin, I think. Russian, maybe, you know,
1: I I think it's a really interesting one because, you know, the the ideal is always to learn the language because you're passionate about it. And the realism is that a lot of interpreters could get passionate about just about any language. Um, And it is a case of... There was uh, Inger Mewburn, who runs a blog for PhD students, was talking about how sometimes passion drives ability and other times ability drives passion. Oh, I like that. And so it's an interesting one that you could... I mean, I I would say, kind of geopolitically speaking, I can't see Chinese being an unimportant language for a long, long time. Um, and I think I wouldn't want to put people off and say, okay, you're learning a useless language unless it's Dothraki or Esperanto. No. But you know, it, you know, if you're if you're learning a language that has very few speakers or isn't used a lot in business or in Conference interpreting, then maybe your future lies in another form of interpreting if you want to interpret with that language.
0: Sure, that's an option, yeah.
1: But, but then on the other hand, if you're thinking, I want to be a conference interpreter, I already have two languages and I'm really passionate about learning another, I would say there's no harm in going, well, what resources do you have? What do you see geopolitically or commercially? You know, in, in looking at all the factors together before deciding. Um, it it may not be as useful this is the better way to say it, that it should probably go in the final show it may not be as useful for a conference interpreter to add Esperanto or Dothraki, but it, for someone who's a, a community interpreter it may be very, very good to, to add Pashto or Urdu um, because yeah. there's such a and so it really depends on, on the situation and I, I would say there's nothing wrong with looking at geopolitics and commerce and saying what are the, not the five year trends because by five years, you might oh, yeah. be ready. But you know, what, what are the longer kind of ten-year trends? What are the the patterns that look fairly well established that you can say? Well, actually, you know, it's likely that the European Union will still exist in ten years. It's likely that China will still be a big force in the next ten years. It's likely that Japan will still be an economic force in ten years. Those languages are going to be big.
2: Right. But at the same time, I have to disagree with what you said because I do believe. I don't believe that all interpreters could be passionate about any language because I've personally experienced that I could be not passionate about a language that I actually did learn because it was in my school and I was not passionate about it.
1: So, okay. on that note... Um, the test I said can, not are. That's,
2: yeah, yeah, that's true. I, yeah, you're right. Completely right. So,
1: a, a little kind of admission here. When I left high school... I left high school thinking, well, that's the last French lesson I will ever do. <laughs> and within three months, I was in a nope. university course to well learn done. French. <laughs> yeah. but, and this is the thing. So I have learned through time to be very, very careful who I take advice from. Mm. So don't take advice on your future as an interpreter from people who don't necessarily have industry knowledge. I nearly stopped trying to be an interpreter because I listened to two people who had zero knowledge of the industry who told me something that was true, you know, when I was in first year in high school, but wasn't true by the time I'd finished. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, so don't listen to other people. Do listen to us Is what <laughs> <laughs> Only Oh, God, listen no, to please don't. <laughs> On a monthly don't basis, listen it, do listen to every episode is what yeah. we mean. Oh, of just… just yeah. Yes. I'm but just going, going back to, to Jonathan's French yeah. lessons, Alex, how do you ah. keep your general skills sharp besides uh. languages? <laughs> wasn't that an elegant segue into our next question? No, it <laughs> wasn't. <laughs> totally. Oh, <Aww. laughs>
0: totally non obvious um yeah. how do we keep uh, keep our skills well we have training as i said um so we we have especially during so, sort of during the summer when there's less going on we have a lot of training courses um for um well both terminology also for um for yeah topics as i said so you know these evergreen topics like fisheries but also new stuff that, that keeps popping up for you know when we expect sort of new commission proposals um then we get we get briefings for that as well um we also have what else do we have we have uh training for technology stuff so i do a lot of that i um so i have tablet training courses um this summer for uh, for example we have new ones Which you host which I host, yes.
2: You should say that you don't have tablet training courses. You I yes, hold tablet, I ho- training, I courses. Hold tablet training. training courses.
0: Yeah. But I just just in, in uh, as a way of saying that this is available to colleagues working right. um, in Skik. We'll link um, that in the
2: description below. Yeah. <laughs> oh.
0: um, what else? Yeah, and in, in terms of in, in terms of sort of interpreting skills, stuff like that. Um, you can of course do your own sort of Yeah, deliberate practice, I guess. So not necessarily just working in the booth, but that's more, uh, I think, an individual responsibility. So I know uh, a few colleagues as well who, for example, work with um, interpreting students. There's quite a few in Brussels as well. So they go to practice groups, they give speeches, they give feedback. And of course, when you give feedback to a student, there's always – it's kind of uh, sort of a two – what you say so it's not a not a one way street but it's kind of an interaction so you you get feedback as well and you can of course ask um, your colleagues for feedback as well and and have just have discussions for example on a difficult speaker or stuff like that but um, the actual sort of interpreting skills that's more a a personal responsibility um or this, i mean for note taking for example i I still do a fair amount of consecutive but some colleagues never do consecutive so there's actually very little point in keeping your no taking skills up to scratch when you never use it so that's right. kind of difficult
2: so i have a question if you do a really boring like technical training do you ever decide to ski a lesson
0: what was that, <laughs> <laughs> was that Jonah- a,
1: Jonathan got it. no that's what? fine <laughs> he was trying to do a pun on Skeek and oh,
0: Skip. Jonathan oh.
1: got it. I didn't even get a chocolate of Jonathan. Oh, I'm so ashamed. Can we just can we just explain there is one pun master on this <sighs> yeah, podcast? okay. I think this and people been... are trying to rise to th- Man <laughs> yeah. I, I am der, der Punmeister.
0: <laughs> the German word for pun is actually Karlauer, Jonathan. So you would be Herr kalauermeister,
1: Herr Dr. kalauermeister.
0: It's almost like the Kellermeister which gonna is sort flight, of good night. the wine cave master. <laughs> the cellar Man
1: cave master?
0: <laughs> wine cave.
1: Oh, <A> wine cave.
0: <laughs> that would be the Kellermeister. <laughs> Alex, are you okay? <laughs> totally not.
1: <laughs> okay. Okay. So-
0: Maybe one or two question. I think we're, we're nearing the, um, oh, yeah, I'm the done. saturation <laughs> point
1: or whatever. So I, I, I was going to say, we, we, when you're a freelancer, if you get some awful speaker, and I think the other Alex will, will agree with me once he kind of calms down a little bit. <laughs> we, need, we need to start doing some calming music over to him. Um, I think the other Alex will agree with me that one of the great things about freelancing is if you get a really boring Meeting or a horribly boring speaker, who's always given an afternoon slot. I have no idea why. Um, and there's always the one where you're about to fall asleep anyway. If we get something really boring, we have the advantage that we know you know it's going to be two days, it's going to be three days, or great, we've only got this person for forty minutes. It, do you? Mm. If you have a boring meeting, it could be that you've got that boring meeting for a week. You know, how do you cope? And and do you ever get bored with speakers and go, please, no more of them?
0: We very rarely have, you know, five day meetings. So maybe we have sometimes we have two days, but that's actually kind of rare. What happens is that a meeting happens on a sort of a monthly basis or a biweekly basis or something like that. Well, you know, you just do your best. I mean, pff, what are you going to do? You can, when you go home, you complain, you complain about it, or you, you know, you sort of bad mouth with your colleagues during the coffee break, you know, far away from the delegates, ideally. But um, not, not, ideally. Much, not much you can do about it, right? It's just. Has
2: it ever happened to you guys when you go home and you complain about the most boring meeting you've had, and then the person you're talking to just looks at you in like in complete and utter a lack of understanding of your actual struggle in life. And you're just like, it was so hard. You, it was so boring. How I do think you know? may
0: need to educate a partner a little bit ah. more because my wife is actually quite understanding. She, she knows, you know, yeah. she knows what it's like. Then again, my wife is of yeah,
2: I was so, just okay, going to say, yeah, she yeah, has
1: the inside okay. knowledge from yeah, within the book. <laughs> so I have the bonus of, the great thing is, is all my kids are young. And there's no better de-stress than when you come up. So I had one meeting in, in London where the last cu- So the, the last two speakers were great because one, the, one of the last speakers was on a topic that, as a Scottish interpreter, I do all the time. So mm-hmm. I could have done his speech for him. And the very last speaker, apart from the t- chair's closing address, was on the de facto specialist subject of my booth mate. So we'd finished on a great day, but during, the speaker before the two easy ones was the definition of boring and the definition of difficult. It's fine when they're boring and easy, but when they're boring and hard, that's annoying. That's so I I, mix, yeah. I I came back from that, that meeting. I got must have got home quite late. And I came back from that meeting and to realize that, like, you know, I think there was still like one child to go to sleep or something. It must not be that like so still a child to go to sleep. I think when you get home and you still have young children to deal with, you don't feel like ranting anymore because your brain just locks into dad mode and, yeah. and everything just melts away. And if you've had a stressful day, the best thing I've found is to lie on the carpet on your front and just let your kids walk all over you. <laughs> <Yeah. sighs> I I don't need relaxation therapy, I just need to lie on the carpet and let my kids storm yeah. all over me
0: although the, at least my son he's, he's almost a teenager now so that's getting a little bit difficult
1: but <laughs> the deep tissue massage like do <laughs> it's so
0: very deep, deep yeah, tissue. don't be like that that's a tricky no, thing i think it's, it's a fair point i mean you yeah sometimes when you get home you know you maybe you you get a you get a few minutes to sort of decompress and sort of switch modes and then it's back to bedtime routine or dinner or whatever and yeah then you just put it aside yeah, and then usually no, once I, you I get back like, I yeah the same you can feel like when i come home and then about it.
2: And then James is here, and like we uncork a nice bottle of wine, and we just lay on the carpet and look at it.
1: It's like the same, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay, okay. Can I can I just say, Alex G, you've just volunteered for bedtime (laughs) with a bottle of wine? No, 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 no. no. Can we can we explain what it's like to put young children to bed?
0: It's the best with a
1: bottle of wine.
0: every child is always happy to go to bed and they won't argue with you and
2: yeah that's how it goes right i heard that all the time totally fine all of the friends that i have there it's
0: easy it's never stressful you know
2: honestly you just give them an ipad and you put on bob the builder and that's it
1: you're good to go (laughs) (laughs) screen time before bed young man (laughs) Mm -mm -mm. (laughs) yo wir schaffen das (laughs) well do you know one thing that would be really good to end with because everyone talks about you know the institutional stuff I think it would be nice to end with because I don't know about Alex G but I made a, a deliberate decision at one point that I wouldn't go through the whole thing of adding another language and that I would be just, just I would be a private market interpreter and the more my career goes on the more mm. I'm favouring that to the point of shocking institutional people by saying I don't really want to do... 90% institutional work, yeah. it would, it, I think it would be good to talk through our thought processes and what type of environment suit what type of interpreters. There's two things going on. So I believe personally that there's a different environment for different kinds of interpreters. And the more I talk to interpreters online and at conferences, the more I realize there are some interpreters and even some translators who would rather be employees than business people. And that's a bit unfortunate if you're a freelancer because a freelancer by definition is not an employee and is a business person whether they like it or not. And so in my own thought process at the beginning I was just like you know I'll take whatever interpreting work comes but you know maybe I might have to add another language. I didn't add a second language, a second foreign language at school because I didn't really get on with the teaching of the other languages for some bizarre reason Um, and i Realized how much effort I'd put into learning French and thought, do I really want to do that again? Well, I have to now. Um, But then the more I did interpreting, the more I realized that when it came to things like AGMs and procedural stuff, and with the exception of fisheries, the kind of policy stuff, I wasn't, I got frustrated because the interpreting that I was doing felt like it was going into the ether. And, you know, I, I don't like that feeling when you finish a job and you say, to the rest of the team did anyone understand what happened and everyone goes no idea but the clients were happy anyway and then I realised that I was much more happier in the kind of technical conferences where you can see people are learning in the kind of very commercial you know we're trying to sell product stuff and in the negotiations I was and also in the press and PR stuff So although, you know, if if work comes, I'm not going to say no, if it's an AGM or an EWC, the work that I'm trying to win at the moment is the leadership stuff, the the commercial stuff, the PR stuff, the sales stuff, because that's where I feel that my skills are best used and it's the jobs that I enjoy most. And so there are some interpreters who, you know, I met an entire kind of consultant, interpreting consultancy recently who specializes in EWCs. And so maybe, I think there's maybe slightly different temperaments or slightly different backgrounds or passions with different interpreters that draw them to, you know, some interpreters love a good EWC, I would love, rather have a press conference. Mm. I mean, let's leave aside whether there is such a thing as a good EWC, that's a whole other question. But, you know, I so, know. So some interpreters love a good AGM, I would rather have a live webcast from the Scottish Parliament. Um. And so maybe, do, would you say that, that, that there is a kind of temperament thing going on that interpreters' favourite jobs tend to align with their temperament, or is it just, you know, um, passion follows skill? You know, they, they start doing a job and they realise, well, I'm getting a lot of um, AGMs for toiletries companies, so actually I really enjoy that because that's what I'm getting.
2: I think there's really something to there, though, passion follows skill, because I've been doing a lot of management stuff you know, whatever it is, like a supervisory board meeting or like a town hall with management presentations. And I'm feeling that I enjoy those things more and more now, but it might also be because I'm doing them more and more. So, you know, like you kind of get used to the style of presentation, the sort of topics that they do. Um, But at the same time, I've realized that, you know, I've been doing this job for a minute now, I'm not saying that to, you know, I'm not saying that for any particular way. Not to brag way, but or I'm, anything. Yeah, not to brag or anything, but I'm not doing it since yesterday. But I still feel like in my mind, and I'm aware of 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 this um, sort of strange thought pattern, I still feel like I'm sort of glamorizing the EU work in my mind, because I've never done it. I've never worked for the European Union in any capacity. And so that's still on my bucket list to this very day, to like at some point say that, yes, I've worked for those hallowed institutions, whatever it may be, Um At the same time, though, you know, I'm working for – and again, this is not to brag. This is simply a a factual statement. I'm working for supervisory boards for billion-euro companies that probably also shape global political Mm decision-making. And I don't feel like that's – like, I don't know. Like, in my mind, there's there's still like a – a gap in terms of the glamour of the job, you know, kind of the the, the importance level, maybe. I don't know. Mm. It's it's kind of weird. I love doing the jobs that I do, but at the same time, there's something aspirational as a freelancer, as in my position as a freelancer about the European Union. I don't want to work there as a staffer, as a full time, because I honestly think that at this point, after. The years of freelancing, I would be utterly incapable of being employed be anywhere.
0: staffer. Yeah, I'm things.
2: completely useless. Um, but there's just something aspirational about the idea of the European Union. I find I can't really put my okay. finger on it. Yeah,
1: mm-hmm. yeah. So, what drew you to go for the European Union rather than freelance, Alex? Was it a kind of temperament thing? If you like order and and organization and kind of predictability or was there something else going on there?
0: Um, To be honest, I've never really thought about it all that much, but I think um, I think it wasn't the stability and the order and and the sort of structure because I didn't really know about that back then. Um, I think I did glamorize as well quite a bit um, because at the university where I trained in Leipzig back in the day, we didn't have a lot of contact with the European institutions, in fact, almost none whatsoever. Um, So it wasn't very far away and seemed sort of mythical almost. Um, I think for me, it was really, yeah, I was always very much in favor of the European cause, if you want to call it that, or the European project, and the whole idea of, you know, countries giving away some of their sovereignty or pooling it rather to, you know, to improve Things Just in general, so I think it was really just that, and i I may have done something that is not interpreting in the u as well simply because i'm I'm convinced of the whole thing being a good idea, you know, just to put it in very simple terms um but then I mean, just the way that I got into interpreting um it just turned out in the end to be a good thing because I didn't really you know. I didn't really want to become a conference interpreter because I had seen it in a movie or something I, I was just you know I was good at languages and that that was about it and I sort of happened into happened to uh, to move into interpreting and it's quite similar with the European institutions I think it it just seemed like a good idea um and I tried it and it turned out to be something that I really enjoyed so I think that's That's what happened.
1: I mean, it's really interesting because my earliest memory as a child is watching the Berlin Wall fall down and then I can the first time I ever saw interpreters where there were two interpreters on stage doing kind of like a sentence-by-sentence consecutive Mm. at a Christian youth conference in Germany. And I think from there I developed this picture of the interpreters being the people on the stage, (laughs) the the people that Mm. people were listening to. Mm. And so from that point of view, the invisible interpreter thing always kind of passed me by. And now that I'm working more in, in commercial stuff and, you know, you always talk to the client over coffee breaks and stuff. I, I, I would... I remember talking to you once about, you know, the relationship between the interpreters and the institutions and the people you're interpreting for and you seem to be suggesting that it was quite distant. Um, I would find that hard because as a freelancer, you know, we have coffee breaks with them, we have lunch breaks with them. You know, the, the likelihood is... In fact, I, I see no problem with the interpreter going up going up up at coffee break and saying you know um you're talking about such and such could you explain what the such and such does you know because mm-hmm. there, there's always going to be something come up that wasn't in your prep but i don't believe you can do that you know the commission you c- can you go up and, and kind of catch someone at coffee break and say could you explain to me this thing or could you go through what you're meaning by that again
0: well, you probably wouldn't do that during a council of ministers or a uh, you know the weekly meeting of the commissioners. But if it's a normal working group, um, yeah, that would be fine. I think um, we do we do in fact sometimes go you know go in and you know if there's a sort of a very specific question or a, yeah, it's, I think it's it's a bit different if it's one of those sort of ritualized uh sort of regular events in brussels maybe not so much but certainly if you have more of a one-off conference where where you actually have coffee breaks um that kind of thing then it's much easier to get in in, in direct contact with delegates and there are some differences as well between again uh the quote-unquote bigger and smaller languages because, um, for example, the the Maltese colleagues or the Estonian colleagues, there's a much higher probability that they n- actually know the people who are the delegates uh. because maybe they studied together or, you know, they've worked together in some other ca- uh, capacity. So, um, yeah, so there's, there's maybe a, a, an even more direct contact, but… Um, it's not frowned upon to talk to delegates. And in fact, sometimes delegates will even come to the booth and you know, just say hello and you know, thank you for your work. I was just curious to see what the booth looks like, that kind of thing. It ha- doesn't happen every day, but it does, it does happen. So there's, yeah, it's much more relaxed now, I think.
2: And also at the same time, I think, you know, especially in these kind of managerial settings that I was talking about earlier, like it's very frowned upon to go out there and ask the people about anything. Mm. Really? Okay. Yeah, like you could not just go up to the CEO and ask them about, oh, by the way, how does this car work? <laughs> like, what's its yeah, steering wheel? You know course. what I mean? Like, you can't just do that. And often, and oftentimes, yeah. even where we are completely um, separate from them, like sometimes we're actually a floor below the meeting because of security reasons. Mm. Like sometimes, I don't yeah. know, you, you know, we're just completely removed from them for confidentiality reasons, security reasons. So, you know, there's literally no way to get to them. And we are very close in proximity, but very remote in terms of accessibility. So,
1: That's,
0: That's a good way of summarizing it, I think, yeah. yeah.
1: The, Thank you. Really, That's the, <laughs> there, really interesting, because I think apart from maybe one AGM that I did where, because of timings, things weren't possible, but we would still have quite good contact with the, the meeting organizers, but pretty much every meeting that I've done, it's been a case of... Um, you know, we will have coffee with the delegates. Occasionally, you know, there's one or two meetings where at lunchtime you'll make sure you're not too near the delegates so they don't lean over and go, can you interpret over lunch? <laughs> but, you know, apart from that, you know, it's not necessarily, you know, what does this car do, but there there might be some thing that's that's arisen that you want to clarify or you want to check. And certainly my experience the clients have actually really appreciated that we care enough to to want to ask them questions about, you know, how you develop this or what the relationship between this and that is. Hmm. Um, they they seem to take it as a compliment rather than as a, oh that were you're prepared. <laughs> That's
2: true. Yeah, but I actually find that the, the I'm
1: just trying to like think
2: about the last few
1: um
2: conferences that I was doing and I was and I actually think that for me it's kind of the opposite that I had like a handful of meetings where I could get to the clients and just like talk to them. You know, just like we had the same lunch area. We had the same thing. Um and for example, like any AGM that you were just saying, like any AGM that I was doing were completely removed from there. Like they don't even see us. They don't even know where we are. The audience, the board members were being web streamed somewhere. So, you know, it's mm. just completely removed. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It, very interesting that it's so kind of opposed.
1: I, I think it also depends. So like most of the AGMs that I've done have been for um, kind of lobbying groups and they have a different or associations and associations, lobbying groups have a different, um, I think, have a different way of working. In fact, I was at one technical conference that was set up by an association and the guy had everyone in the room doing these kind of Amy Cuddy power poses to make them feel strong and whatever.
2: Mm, The power (laughs) pose. You do the victory with the two hands up, the victory pose.
1: No, it was like kind of standing with your, your, your arms out wide to the side yeah. and your legs as wide. And, and the, no, the, well, he, you know,
2: in fact, if you stand like this for 15 seconds, it changes the physiology of your body. I've been told many, many times at yeah, conferences. Yeah, <laughs> and good. you will have more power. But, yeah. but, but he,
1: he actually right. came up. So like uh, one, of the organi- one of the local organizers who was going to do this came up to us and, and came into the booths and he went, hmm. Might be difficult for you to power pose in here as if he was expecting us while thing <laughs> to be doing like Amy Cuddy power poses. And we're not in the plush EU boots. I don't know about you, Alex. We're in the mobile boots that are mm-hmm. like the equivalent of IKEA flat pack.
2: Yeah, they're about the size of my first apartment. If,
1: if you <laughs> stretch your arms out too wide, you give your boothmate a black eyes. <laughs> yeah, it's
2: very true. <laughs> yeah. but
1: anyway, oh. that was an absolutely, a really fascinating episode. I think it's probably the deepest that we've gone into a subject. F- of that depth for for quite a while. Quite possibly, Um, yeah. I I find it absolutely fascinating and I'm really glad that there's more to institutional interpreting than having to be institutionalised. And and doing lots of... He did it again! One per episode. (laughs) Uh, And and doing lots of... um, Doing lots of tests, I'd heard so many scare stories about the EU accreditation test that it did sound like you know they made people go over you know, like army style assault courses and interview them about their parents' history and are you a member of any dangerous political organisations?
0: Well, I can, I can just say that it's been great to get those questions from you because it's, you know, it's always nice to be able to reflect on what you do every day and just sort of see it from a often completely different perspective. So that's, that's, been, uh, that's been nice. Thank you.
1: It hasn't persuaded me to join the EU, but it was it was a lot of fun. <laughs> and it has persuaded plan. me to, to try and get myself invited to like translating Europe Forum or um, the Skeek Universities Forum. If anyone's listening, I'm I'm always open to free travel. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Dankeschön, Herr Podcastmann.
1: Herr Doctor Podcastmann. Ja, wir schaffen das.
2: Wait, my wine glass is not big enough for this conversation.
0: (laughs) No, it's not hilarious. It's embarrassing, but let's not talk. Well, there's two Germans here, so, you know,
1: what would you expect?
2: Yeah, let's talk about the worst. This is the German. (laughs) This
1: is the worst episode I've ever recorded.
2: Oh, I like that. I feel like we should just like very ungracefully power pose out of this episode and just leave it leave it at that oh yeah I'm gonna hit stop now